You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, thanks so much for joining us here today on AOA. Jesse Allen in for Mike Pearson, and we have a busy show lined up for you here today. Coming up later on in segment four, we are going to look big picture. What's going on in the market trade? A lot of volatility back into the grain markets, especially. Christy Van On, she sits with Van On and Company, will join us coming up later on in the show. In segment three, if you uh, are a big fan of corn on the cob, you may not have a problem, but could there be a problem with canned and frozen sweet corn production here in the U.S.? Well, that industry struggling a little bit. We're going to learn more about some recent research from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and study author Marty Williams will join us coming up in segment three here today. Also in segment two, we're going to look at the ag economy and more with David Widmar from Agricultural Economic Insights. First up, though, we're going to take a look at the latest equipment sales numbers for the month of June and the first half of the year. Joining us now, Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, it is great to talk to you again, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Well, Kurt, let's jump into these numbers. And again, I appreciate the time as always looking at the June farm tractor sales mark. Uh, first year over year gain for the year in the U.S. was one of the big headlines I saw. Can you uh, touch on that just a little bit for us to start? Yeah, when you look at the the tractor and combine sales, you know, AM is releases these every month as we have for about the past 30 years. So we've got some really neat trend data to put uh, to put in front of tractor and combine sales. When we look at the month of May specifically, we've been in a funky tractor market for the last couple of years, largely because of the pandemic. And so for the first time, tractor volumes in the month of June, year over year, actually uh, were showing a little bit of an increase. No. But that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story because the ag tractor market specifically, those tractors over 100 horsepower, it's actually been doing pretty good for the last 18 months. It's the tractors under 40 horsepower, those consumer tractors that uh, were are, uh, just absolutely on fire during the pandemic, that, uh, that those markets have been just a little bit softer and that affects the overall total number of tractors sold. Kurt, how about on the combine side? Looks like some uh, fairly impressive numbers there as well. Can you give us the details? Well, combine sales are a pretty interesting market to take a look at. You know, you don't you don't wake up tomorrow and decide to buy a combine. You actually you know have to think about it a little bit. Uh, combine sales for the year to date are actually up over fifty percent wow. uh, year to date. So we sold about just under a thousand more combines were sold in the first half of 23 versus the first half of 22. So that's, that's some pretty good news. And then for the month of June specifically, uh, we're showing those being up uh, about 10%. So those are, those are good numbers. Again, I think what those indicate just kind of a, an overall optimism in the ag economy, um, because, you know, you don't buy a combine for, for this year's harvest. You buy a combine for the next five to 10 years harvest. And I think farmers are, overall overall optimistic about the future of agriculture even though we're dealing with some you know challenges right now with with weather and you know commodity prices you never know what those are going to be but overall the ag market you know has a has an optimistic future ahead of it and i was gonna say uh, to your point that overall optimism you, you think about the last few years for a lot of our farmers uh Decent years for profitability, I, I think, for many folks. And as you said, you know, you don't just wake up and decide to go buy a combine tomorrow. So maybe some of these purchases uh, have been planned for a little while or, you know, maybe farmers deciding to kind of pull the trigger, noticing they had a, a little bit of maybe extra discretionary income uh, on the balance sheet. That seems to be, I, I think, one of the biggest drivers here, Kurt, right? I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, is no secret that there have been supply chain challenges for everything, whether it's you know, pickups and pinball machines and tractors and combines have, have fallen uh, into that same category as well. So, you know, there might be some, some sort of pent up demand or demand that wasn't actually been able to be satisfied over the last couple of years because of supply chain challenges. And now that that seems to be working itself out, um, 
some of that demand is being met. I think that certainly figures into that. I think the optimism figures into that. We talk about combines specifically. I mean, there's some brand new technology out there with new models that are pretty exciting. So when a, when a farmer can take advantage of that technology to make their operations more efficient, I think that's also figuring into this mix as well. It's not just optimism, but it's also perhaps some upgrades in the equipment at the same time. How about the uh, Canadian numbers? I know AEM looks at those as well. Any updates uh, for what we're seeing there? Yeah, we you know we track uh, U.S. and Canada kind of the same. It's it's sort of funny. Usually they they follow almost the exact same pattern. Uh, in the in, in Canada, the numbers are, are not quite as optimistic right now for the month of June. Uh, I think we're still dealing with with some uh, some latent softness in that uh, tractors under 40 horsepower and those tractors 40 to 100 horsepower are are off just a little bit. So tractor sales in Canada are actually off about 15% for the year and also about 15% for the for the month of June. In contrast. Combine sales, just like they are in the United States, are are actually quite quite strong. So, so combine sales by units in the month of uh, June are up about thirty percent, but for the year they're up about eighty percent in uh, in Canada. So those are again pointing to those same fundamentals that we're seeing here in the states. Our neighbors to the north are are kind of experiencing as well with those same factors leading to uh, to the purchases of combines and tractors. Well, great stuff, Kurt, on the equipment numbers side. I also want to ask you as well about a precision ag study from AEM. I know this has been out a little while. It's been a partnership with a few other groups. Can you just touch on that study for us a little bit? Yeah, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, agriculture oftentimes gets a gets a bad rap by, by those who don't completely understand what it is that we have to do or what we're doing to, uh, you know, to make the world a better place. And what we attempted to do was to, to quantify the values, the societal values, if you will, that come out of, uh, you know, this adoption of precision ag that farmers have been doing for the last 20, 30 years. We were able to isolate kind of the specific amount of productivity gains that have come as a result of farmers buying precision ag equipment. And that includes things like, you know, auto guidance, you know, a tractor that can drive itself or variable rate technology, your section control of your planters and sprayers, those types of technologies. You know, it only goes to say that the logic tells you that, a, you know, a tractor that drives itself should be more fuel efficient because it doesn't overlap as much. Well, we were actually able to prove that with some numbers and, and uh, kind of said that we're actually, as a result of that precision agriculture, specifically in the United States, 6% less fossil fuels have been burned over the last uh, you know 18 years well that's a that's a pretty great story you, know, you couple that with things like uh, improved herbicide application efficiency you know that goes up by about seven percent and fertilizer application efficiency by about seven percent we've been actually been able to see an increase in crop production over the last uh, few years specifically as amounted to about four percent more production has come out of that same bit of land. Mm-hmm. That's the equivalent of about 10 million acres have uh, been avoided because of precision agriculture. That's a pretty good story. Well, that definitely is a great story. Folks can learn more. They can read that full report and more online aem.org forward slash insights. We've been talking with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. And Kurt, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much. All right, coming up next, we're going to take a broad look at the ag economy and some of the latest research from Agricultural Economic Insights with David Widmar. We'll be back with more AOA right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen. And in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? 
Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. Hi, I'm news correspondent Bob Woodruff. In 2006, a roadside bomb struck the armored vehicle I was riding in while reporting from Iraq. I sustained a life-threatening traumatic brain injury. The military term, got your six, means I have your back. And that day, our service members had mine. During my recovery, I learned firsthand the challenges facing our service members who return home with injuries. While serving, their fellow service members always had their six. Now that they're home, it is our turn. We started the Bob Woodruff Foundation to make sure that the camaraderie and support they relied on in the military carries on. And we need you. Please join us as part of the Got Your Six initiative and help us be there for impacted veteran service members and their families. They've had our backs. It's time we have theirs. Learn more at gotyoursix.org. That's gotyoursix.org. Using the number six. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. And welcome back to AOA. Jesse Allen in for Mike Pearson here today. Right now, joining us, David Winmar with Agricultural Economic Insights as we take a look at some of their latest research and what is happening with the ag economy and the markets. David, it's always great to talk to you, my friend. How are you? Thanks, Jesse. Great to join you. Well, let's dive in, David. And just to start here today, I want to look broadly at the markets and the ag economy. We've had a lot of volatility, a lot of things going on here the last few weeks. What is your take, just looking big picture here, at what's going on with the markets and the ag economy right now? A lot of movement up, a lot of movement down. But in general, we've been treading sideways when we think about the balance sheet, when you think about where these market prices have sort of been hanging out around. Uh, I was with some clients and some folks the other day, and we were talking about you know, the June weather scare, the June acreage surprises, and then the WASI adjustments to beginning stocks, to acreage, and to yield on corn. And there wasn't all that much of a change. And so there's a couple of reminders there. One, we should never think about one data point moving by itself on those balance sheets. So when the USDA increased acreage for corn and decreased acreage for soybeans, there were other tweaks and adjustments. So you can never look at just one of those by themselves and say, oh my gosh, we have 18% stocks used for corn or 3% stocks used for soybeans means. That's always a dangerous habit to do. So we want to stay away from that. The other one to keep in mind here is we're setting up for a situation where uh, whatever the market year average price is for this 23 growing crop, there are going to be some producers who are able to market that crop considerably better than that. And some folks who might find that their marketing prices are considerably lower. And so average when it comes to marketing this year, it's not going to be very representative across individual producers. And producers need to think critically about their marketing plans. We don't usually update our marketing plans until the winter or early spring, but I think we need to pause here and think about, do I have a marketing plan that's going to allow me to you know, weather or, or stick with my plan uh, when you think about some of these movements that corn has been experiencing? Well, and you think about this well as well, and you made the comment to me before we jumped on the air, you know, I mean, we're getting caught up in looking at drought maps and this and that. And, you know, something that I know you and the team there at AEI like to talk about is the range of outcomes and all the different scenarios when we think about what's going on on our operation. And, 
you know, to your point, we can't get caught up on one data point or another. We got to take everything into perspective here, David. It makes it hard for producers because take the example of USDA increasing corn acreage. Like we saw that play out. We knew that they would probably need to see some more usage. So what's the implications of all these once all the dominoes fall? Uh, And that could be overwhelming, can be stressful. So producers need to have a good marketing plan in place. They need to know what a good price is. And what's a good price? In our opinion, it's, is it a price that allows you to meet your operations goals? Are you covering all your expenses? Are you making progress to those long-term goals you have? Let's not get caught up in trying to predict the highs or you know predicting the lows here. Let's just focus on executing on a great marketing plan, raising great crops. And keep in mind that um, there's always this adage that I grew up with. You're always uh, three days away from a flood and 10 days away from a drought. So we never know what the long run story here can be. And we see this in the weather markets quite frequently. David, I know you guys have a a new uh, report out, a new article, just looking at farm machinery interest expenses and and, uh, index with that and thinking about farm debt. And I know this ties into everything when it comes to our, our ag economy and our operations. Can you talk about that just a little bit for us? Yeah, that's a great question, Jesse. There's actually a, a follow-up to that article uh, on the AEI premium side of the site. But the first thing we stopped to said is we saw interest rates increase significantly over the last 18 months. What has that had an impact on the expense that producers could see, that cash flow obligation they could see for financing? So we created this index several years ago and we update it saying for every thousand dollars of farm machinery that a producer borrows, what's that annual payment look like? And as you can imagine, short repayment periods and high interest rates like we saw in the 1980s creates a really high index value and really long repayment periods and low interest rates we saw a few years ago creates really low payments. When we looked at the most recent data for early 2023, we saw that that index didn't go up nearly as much as we thought it would. And why? Well, what happens here is when you look into this is we've had higher interest rates, but those payment terms keep getting stretched out. And that means we've been able to offset that. So if you're looking at buying a new piece of equipment or replacing a piece of equipment, uh, you might not see that much sticker shock when it comes to the payment itself. Now, in the follow-up article, we took a look at this and said, hey, that's not all that you have to keep in mind here, as producers are very well know that used car sales uh, tactic. Uh, extra payments means extra payments. And so we see the interest expense for borrowing $1,000 of equipment jump significantly over the last 18 months. We've also seen this idea of how many years worth of equipment are we paying for? That's been important to keep in mind. So if you're borrowing $1,000 a year, like this index example has, you're starting to accumulate a lot of future payments, a lot of future obligations. In fact, in this example, about 75% of your annual payments are actually future uh, or past year's activities. So the decisions we make this year could have consequences for maybe five years down the road from today. Well, and I just think about that, you know, stretching those payment terms out and more and just the the cost of money. I don't know how else to explain it, David, but with interest rates going up and just that overall cost of money and inflation and recession talk and higher dollar, it's just it's I I think it's something that, yeah, we're going to be seeing some of the effects farther down the road as we kind of, you know, the old adage say, kick the can down the road a little bit, David. Yes. And what happens here is fixed expenses, whether it's our equipment or our family living or these debt obligations we have, these are very uncomfortable. They can be hard to measure. But when we're taking out 48, 49 month loans, which the Kansas City Federal Reserve data says in early 2023, 49 months was the average farm loan and machinery uh, repayment period. You're looking at a very long commitment on these. And so you're locking yourselves into these obligations for you know, four, four plus years. And so we have to think about the consequences for our operation today, but also down the road, recognizing we don't know where commodity prices are going to be three months from now, let alone three years from now. But if we get into ourselves in these long-term commitments and we're pushing this out a long ways, the second piece, as you mentioned, is that cost of borrowing money. When you're borrowing at a 7% interest rate and you're doing it over 49 months, that interest expense has a way of really building up over that time period. So the payments themselves maybe not haven't gone up very much, but we've offset this rising interest cost, this cost of borrowing money by adding more payment months on there. We'll see how this plays out, but producers are going to need to think about that and reconsider it. I think the high interest rate environment really reminds us that conditions have changed. So rules of thumb that have lasted really well for the last four, five, six years, we need to update our assumptions, make sure we're not just rinse and repeat on something that needs to be revisited. 
David, I have to ask you about this as well. I was checking out your website, AEI.ag, and I, I saw another article, the headline, Ice Cream, not as popular as it used to be. I got to ask you, buddy, uh, that, that seems like, uh, I'm like, come on now, I love my ice cream. So what's the deal behind that one, David? <laughs> well, happy National Ice Cream Month. Earlier on the 16th was National Ice Cream Day. So we took a look at the ice cream consumption trends, and we took a look at that all the way back to the 1970s is when some of these data began. So when we look at regular fat ice cream, I think consumption was around 18 pounds per person annually, and that's fallen to about 12 pounds per person annually here in more recent years. So there's just been a shift. If you think about what we've been doing in yogurt, yogurt consumption's up quite a bit. So that's per capita basis, what are the impacts for the dairy producers? Well, since the 1970s, we've added over 100 million additional Americans. So when you net that out, there's actually about the same number of pounds of regular fat ice cream consumed today as there were three, four decades ago. It's the low-fat ice cream that's actually seen an increase in the amount of pounds being produced and consumed at the nationwide. Uh, we didn't look at dollars of consumption, sort of at mm -hmm. home versus away from home. I think there's some of these premium ice creams out there. You know, you just can't find vanilla. It's a very special vanilla ice cream. The last point we looked at is how much of the milk fat that dairy producers are producing on a regular basis is going into the milk supply or it's going into the ice cream supply chain. And that's actually been decreasing because uh, we've been seeing a lot of increase in dairy production. So total pounds of ice cream is about the same, but we produce more milk and more pounds of dairy fat today than we did in the past. So that's worth keeping in mind. So it's not just the per capita consumption we got to think about. We got to think about total consumption, the impact on the dairy industry, and also this, how much dollars are we spending as individuals on ice cream? So it's a complicated story, but it's a fun one for this time of the year. I think all that says to me is I just need to go eat more ice cream, period. Just just to be a good guy and support the uh, dairy industry, David. <laughs> you know, there was a little bit of a 2020 peak there in that data where ice cream did bump up a little bit in, during that <laughs> pandemic. And I know uh, this per capita decline isn't playing out at the individual level for me. I'm, I'm eating more ice cream than ever. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to go uh, have some ice cream here in uh, later on today. David, I know if folks uh, want to check out the latest research, you guys have a great website, AEI.ag, and I know they can uh, sign up for the premium side of that as well and the uh, Ag Forecast Network, can't they, David? Yep, check us out at AEI.ag. We have weekly free articles, but also all the access to all of our content through AEI Premium. And the AEI.ag Presents podcast are still out there. You can take a look at all those episodes that we put out over the last few years. Fantastic. David Widmar with Agricultural Economic Insights. As always, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about the struggling canned and frozen corn industry with Marty Williams from USDA ARS and the University of Illinois. After more AOA right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of the United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Russia executed airstrikes on Ukraine port facilities for a third night in a row last night. Although the response by the commodity markets has been lackluster, they are all lower currently. The seriousness of the situation was seen in a threat from Russia yesterday when it said that it would consider any ship moving toward Ukraine as possibly containing military equipment and a possible target. 
Now, Ukraine has since warned that any ships heading to ports in Russia or occupied areas of Ukraine may also be considered military targets. Now, because Russia is still dumping record quantities of cheap wheat onto the world market and Brazil is currently releasing large volumes of cheap corn into the market, Monday's news that Russia was pulling out of the Black Sea grain deal didn't hit the markets as it might have expected to. Now, the trade expected that Ukraine would find a way with the help of the United Nations and Turkey to open a new safe corridor for shipping grains longer term. Fund managers maintain their massive short positions in wheat and their expanding short positions in corn, but that has all changed when Russia started bombing Ukraine's port infrastructure, which would take a year or more to repair. That's also raising risks of retaliation in a way that may threaten the willingness of shippers to haul Russian grain through the Black Sea as well. Now, the odds of that may be low, but the implications are massive for world wheat supplies, and that's why speculative shorts rushed to unwind their positions so aggressively this week. Now, weather is remaining a factor for Midwest crops, even though that's largely been overshadowed by the Black Sea crisis. The pattern is expected to trend warmer and drier over the remainder of this month, perhaps even into the early week of August. Now, an oppressive heat dome isn't expected, nor do forecasters expect it to be totally dry, but forecasters are expecting the pattern to be temporary in nature with cooler weather conditions expected in August. The dollar and crude oil are firming up today. Crude oil is testing its resistance against its 200-day moving average. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility. Independence changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. And joining us now, pleased to have with us on the program, Marty Williams. He is a USDA ARS ecologist and also an affiliate professor at the Department of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And he is uh, one of the study authors of a very interesting study looking at the canned frozen corn industry and how that industry is struggling just a little bit. And Marty, I appreciate you uh, joining us on the program today. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Doing well and appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about some of our research. Well, this was a very interesting study that caught my eye. And uh, we were just chatting a little bit before we went on the air. You know, I, I think about, uh, and I just had some here this last weekend, uh, sweet corn on the cob. You know, I'm thinking about summertime in the Midwest and we're going and, and picking it up off the truck at, you know, maybe the grocery store parking lot or, or whatnot. But the other side of that industry is the canned frozen corn industry. And I know your new report and this new research shows that things are struggling a little bit. Can you just lay out the, the kind of the, the bones and the, and the details of what you guys found with your research, Marty? Sure. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you differentiated, you know, fresh market sweet corn, which you're talking about, you know, corn on the cob that you're going to get in the produce section uh, of the grocery store or at the farmer's market or from the, you know, local local neighbor uh, compared to sweet corn grown for processing, which um, we have here in the U.S. that is predominantly in uh, about half. Most of the acres of sweet corn in the U.S. are sweet corn grown for processing and about half of that production is in the upper midwest so wisconsin minnesota illinois a little bit there in iowa uh, and then also the pacific northwest which is largely in eastern washington and 
the trend, we know the national trend over the last couple of decades has been uh, a bit of a decline in sweet corn grown for processing. And uh, I understand that, you know, there's uh, from, from the market side, from the demand side, there's people uh, on per capita production has been slipping a bit in, in folks eating uh, sweet corn, either canned or frozen products. <laughs> and um, so this research was neat in that we actually got some proprietary data from several companies that sh- we could have a, a, f- a higher resolution look at that, like exactly what's going on. And we see, um, so we could look at it by production area, like individual states and how, whether it's rain fed or, or irrigated production. And we see for all of our our major production areas just a, a bit of a decline over the last couple of decades in, in terms of number of acres and interestingly not not all of our, of these production areas were also decreasing in total production uh, there was one most most of them were but um, Wisconsin was one state that actually has been increasing their production ever so slightly despite having a, a bit fewer acres so it suggests they're actually you know, you know, increasing their yields mm-hmm. um, over time, uh, but where we saw the biggest declines in in production and acreage were our rain-fed areas, particularly here in the Midwest, um, and well, I, and that's quite striking. Yeah, yeah quite striking and, and and very interesting. And y- you think about how weather patterns have been changing and. I have to ask, you think about those rain-fed areas and obviously losing some of that production. Did you end up finding, was this some correlation with just how the climate is changing? We're getting warmer temperatures and more. Did you mm. did you kind of find something to that effect, Marty? Well, what we saw, we, we could certainly see um, the widest swings in yields uh, were occurring you know, from year to year, uh, we're occurring in our rain fed production areas. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, whatever, you know, uh, that's one thing we, you know, have the benefit of having here in the Midwest is a continental climate (laughs) and it's, and we can get a wide swing in you know, temperatures and precipitation, uh, you know, storm events and, uh, yeah, so so our yields varied greater in these rain-fed production areas. Um, you know, the irrigated, of course, many of the irrigated fields tend to be on on coarser textured soils. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and soils that drain better. So there's some benefit not only being able to apply water when rainfall is is less than what you know is desired. But then also when we have these heavy rainfall events and these, you know, significant storms, those soils tend to, uh, you know, the, the water tends to infiltrate better and, and yeah. move move through the soil profile better than our rain-fed soils, which are, tend to be heavier soils. Uh, you know, that's the kind of the benefit. They hold a lot of water, but they also can hold a lot of water <laughs> sometimes <laughs> when we need it to move away. So um, I think in terms of, you know, the irrigated fields, I think it's it's when we, we got to think about both sides of the water supply, both, you know, not enough rainfall or excessive rainfall might buffer those irrigated production fields Mm -hmm. from some at least extremes in in rainfall events or or um you know precipitation patterns sure so i guess the thing that i would think about here and that many folks maybe listening in might wonder as well do we need to sound the alarm so to speak do we need to worry about maybe not finding as many cans of sweet corn on the grocery shelves or or in the bags in the freezer potentially if this trend continues, Marty. What do you think? Oh gosh, um, I I don't think so. Um, okay. So so globally, the U.S. is is the number one producer not only of sweet corn products, um, but also a lot of the technology that has gone into uh, making this crop such a popular crop both for processing and for fresh market, you know, the, 
all, to my knowledge, all of the major improvements in eating quality, uh, particularly for fresh market, has has happened here in the U.S. In fact, the University of Illinois has been instrumental in a couple major uh, breakthroughs in eating quality with uh, some of the endosperm traits that they've uh, that have been developed years years ago, um, mm-hmm. the fifties and the seventies. So we have a, you know, here in the U.S., we have a great, and we and we have companies that are uh, actively developing new hybrids. Um, we have a few researchers trying to help solve some of these problems. So I feel like, um, you know, we have, if there's a place and time that can that can uh, deal with um, new challenges, I, I I feel like it's here, and we're we're best suited to address those. You know, that being said, I you know, perhaps the biggest issue is we need to be sure that you know people enjoy this product it's it's a great product uh, whether it's fresh or or preserved in some way it's it's a phenomenal product um so so i would say you know we we definitely want people to continue enjoying sweet corn and they should enjoy more of it (laughs) yeah Um, i would definitely agree with you on that one uh (laughs) enjoy more of it it's always so good and i know if folks want to look at the full research, they can go online to the aces.illinois.edu website and search for the Sweet Corn Production Report to learn more. Marty, before we run out of time, I want to ask you real quick. You're there in central Illinois, of course. We've seen some struggle with the field corn crop this growing season. Can you give us some thoughts and update on how that crop is looking right now? Yeah, I guess I've I've had quite a bit of travel here lately. So um, the last few weeks and just, you know, windshield observation. So nice to get some rainfall uh, that we didn't get in June. Certainly, I've seen, you know, I haven't looked at any reports here, just probably people that can speak much more intelligently to this, but just my windshield observation of personal travel that it's we're we're finally seeing some tassels uh, mm-hmm. in the last week or so. It's a lot more tassels uh, being observed than than uh, uh, than than what we've had in the past, and continuing to see that as far you know up north into Wisconsin as well. Gosh, I don't know if I should really say anything because I <laughs> I just I don't track those types of things. Oh. The unique the unique thing about sweet corn though, yeah. Okay, so field corn. If if the state of Illinois was all planted in one week by all the growers, uh, you know, mid-April, everybody'd be happy, right? I mean, it's like, okay, well, we could all get it in. Sweet corn, we cannot do that. We can't have um everything ready at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's fresh market, uh, because people want, you know, not just on the 4th of July, they might want sweet corn, you know, later in July and in August, maybe in September. So same thing with the processing plants. These plants can only handle so much volume at once. Sure. So having uh, staggered, they do a little bit with maturity, but a lot of it has to do with staggering the planting of sweet corn so that there's the right amount ready at any one day to be able to run through the plant. And that adds a unique challenge for this crop because, you know, you have, uh, you have periods of time where, you know, the, the crop is at a sensitive stage such mm-hmm. as silking that might not necessarily have ideal weather in late July or into August. Um, but we're still hoping to, you know, have a certain amount of, of crop ready to be harvested sometime later in the season. And, and it's just not as robust of a plant as field mm-hmm. corn, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners know. It's a smaller plant, yeah. smaller root system, so not not quite as hardy to some of the extreme environmental conditions that seems like we occasionally get more and more yeah. these days. Oh, very, very true. Well, uh, we appreciate the windshield view thoughts for the field corn crop. I, I, I very much appreciate that and appreciate all the insight uh, into sweet corn and the sweet corn industry and your research and Thank you uh, for joining us here today on the show. We really appreciate it. We'll look forward to talking to you again in the future, Marty. Thanks so much. You're you're very welcome, Jesse. Thanks for the interest again. Take care. All right. Up next, Markets with Christy Van On. She's the Van On Company here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. 
Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the King of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. 
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA. Jesse Allen in for Mike Pearson here today. We need to take a look at what's going on in the market trade. A lot of volatility going on here this week, whether we talk weather concerns. Again, we look at the Black Sea issues with the Russia-Ukraine war. You got the dollar thrown in there as well, lending some support. Here to talk about all of it with us, we welcome in Christy Van On. She sits with Van On and Company. Christy, great to talk with you here today on AOA. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing fantastic. And I just want to start right there. I mentioned, you know, we got weather concerns, a hot, dry forecast kind of coming back into the cord belt here over the next, say, seven to 10 days, right during a key pollination time for corn. That's on one side. You have the Black Sea grain deal issues on the other. And I'll throw the dollar in there too. The dollar's been a bit supportive, it seems like, in these markets overall. As you look big picture, What's your take with how volatile and just how things have been shaping up here the last few days in the grains? Yeah, it's definitely been a roller coaster when you look at these markets and how they've uh, reacted some news. And we know that we're going to get hot and dry here for the next stretch. I think what happens after it is the biggest question. So we feel pretty confident that at least through day seven to 10, we're going to be dry and hot. And we're really going to crank up the heat and see some hundreds and some spots that typically don't see hundred. And those hundred degree days are going to be in some of the drier areas. So it's, it is definitely a concern. You definitely have pockets out there that have not gotten the moisture, but you're starting to look at the extended forecast and hard to believe your extended forecast is starting to talk about August. And we just had Noah come out this morning with a forecast for August that is cool and wet. And that is a dream come true for these crops uh, and especially soybeans. And so we're looking at this situation. We're saying, okay, if we can get some big moistures before a hot and dry stretch, come in here, handle it, and it doesn't last very long, what kind of crop damage are we actually going to see? And I think that's what the market's trying to decipher right now is what kind of justification do we need to put onto this hot and dry stretch coming up? Like you said, you also have Russia and Ukraine. Um, I think that's what really pushed the markets yesterday. At one point, Chicago wheat was like 40 higher and jumped to 60 higher. And I was like, what is going on? And it seems like Russia almost wants to target grain, right? I think they mm -hmm. found their sweet spot to kind of that pressure point that makes everyone in the world really pay attention. And I think now that they've backed out of the, the Black Sea trade agreement, I think that they're targeting these uh, ships saying, hey, any ship is going to be seen as a military vessel. So now you're mm -hmm. saying, okay, we can't even bring these ships into this area and insurance is not gonna cover them anymore. So you've pretty much halted all ability to really move this grain out of this situation. And that got the market's attention. Um, the big question is how do we move forward from here and what kind of impact does it have? Does that mean more demand for the US? And I, I wonder, you know, we really did not see the demand pick up like we probably should have when we were at the peak of the Russia and Ukraine situation. We are very mm -hmm. outpriced when it comes to the world market, especially when you see Brazil coming in here with this monster corn and soybean crop. So it's gonna be difficult, but we need to see that demand show up. And I think until we can see the demand show up, people are going to treat the Russia-Ukraine Black Sea Trade Agreement as a situation, but not a dire situation quite yet. It feels like, especially in corded soybeans, that the momentum here this past uh, few sessions in the market, it, it's very thin. We've seen some hedge fund selling and profit taking come in here on the rally off and on. And it just doesn't feel like there is much weight underneath these markets and that the bottom could could fall out of this rally at any time, Christy. Yeah, I really think I agree with that comment so much because normally when you're seeing these markets kind of trade and they're they're pretty steady, you know, you move in a nice direction to the top or downside, but right now they are bouncing all over the place and you're seeing a market go from, um, you know, for corn from four lower to eight lower in a matter of seconds. That's how you really know this market is thin. They don't have a lot of participation. Um, and that's when you can see those explosive moves. And we saw managed money be such aggressive sellers of corn over the last three weeks. I think this was their opportunity to come in and even things up. And so if we see them step away from the market and they got to where they wanted to be and even up on positions, now we're going to say who's going to be out there right now to be traders of this market. And it does feel like it's very limited participation. 
You look at 540, 550 on corn, $14, no beans. I feel like this has got to be a spot, an opportunity for farmers to catch up on some selling if they've missed out on some of the last few rallies that we saw earlier in the year, Christy. Would you agree or not? Yeah, we definitely agree. We've used 550, we've used $14, and we've used $9 for spring wheat as uh price objectives to get caught up where we want to be. Uh, and you know what, if you're not happy with these prices, treat them as a level of um, kind of a line in the sand. So if this market decides to start violating 550 to the downside, $14 and $9, maybe look at that and do something to kind of uh, get a floor underneath you. But those are the levels we're watching. $9 on spring wheat has been a stickler. It just, this market cannot get through it. Uh, we know that it's not a great crop out there, uh, but for some reason the market just doesn't want to pay attention to it. And that psychological level of $9 brings out those sellers. Uh, we breached $14 here in soybeans. We're now back above it, but that's also going to be a huge level that this market watches because we don't have a whole lot of trade above $14 for this Nove 23 contract. And so to look at it and say, we have to have a reason to be justifying this price movement above this point. I think that fundamentals support that in soybeans. But if you don't get the support in corn, you don't get the support in wheat, it's going to be a struggle for soybeans to be able to go at it alone. Christy, real quick, uh, before we run out of time, final thoughts, anything else just on your mind or anything you want to reiterate to folks listening in as they're thinking about their marketing right now in this volatile environment? Yeah, so we're going to come into uh, option expiration on Friday, and then we're going to have a weekend where weather is going to be a driving force. The heat that is supposed to hit us is supposed to be this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday time frame. And so when we come into Sunday night to kind of see where those weather forecasts are, all eyes are going to be if that, that extended forecast keeps the, the heat in there, and that's going to push these markets or not. Well, fantastic thoughts. Christy Van On, she said with Van On and Company there in central Minnesota. Thanks so much for joining us here on AOA. We appreciate the time. Thank you. And that is going to do it for today's show. Mike Pearson will be back on the next episode of AOA with more conversations surrounding what is happening in rural America. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. At the Veterans Health Administration, we provide life-changing care to over 9 million veterans across more than 1,200 facilities nationwide. Our hands are busy, competent, skilled, healing, helping, and friendly. A place where diverse teams come together hand-in-hand to provide full patient-centered care and where even robots lend a hand. Join hands with us. Learn more at vacareers.va.gov. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.